If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Please join me in a very warm welcome for Owen Jones and Paul Myers. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you, Claire. I won't linger on introductions tonight. You all know Owen. This event sold out almost as soon as it was advertised. After stints as a union lobbyist and as a parliamentary researcher for John McDonnell, one of a very small handful of left-wing Labour MPs left, he became a writer, reluctantly, he always says, but unfortunately fated to be a writer by writing now two best-selling books. He's also, of course, the writer of a weekly column, now for The Guardian, formerly for The Independent. He's also a full-time activist, heavily involved in the People's Assembly and in the left-wing think tank class. And he seems to be a daily public speaker, appearing up and down the country and on the media almost every day. There is a remarkable fact about Owen, which is that he turned 30 years old. 13, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually 58. I've just had a facelift. It's remarkable. Recommend it. We'll take the average. 30. Yeah, 30. Just a few weeks ago, and yet he is, I think, probably the most prominent left-wing voice in Britain today. And whilst that, of course, is testament to his charisma, to his articulacy, to the integrity integrity of his politics and his determination to put them across, I think it also be first to agree that it's also a symptom of just how little room there is now for left-wing voices in the mainstream media, a mainstream media which is a central pillar in the establishment that you talk about in your new book. Maybe we could begin by defining some terms. Um, You've inherited this term, the establishment, from the 1950s, said that a man called Henry Fairley first used it in 1955. And his definition was a matrix of official and social relations within which power is exercised. Official and social relations. And in the 1950s and for some time afterwards, that would have meant senior figures in the government and civil service, the judiciary, Church of England... BBC. Times Literature Review, according to Henry Fairley. TLS, fine. Um, it doesn't mean that so much now, certainly not in your notion of the modern establishment, where which places less emphasis on seniority and social relationships, and more on ideas held in common and what you call a shared mentality. Maybe you could say something about that. And shared economic relationships. So Henry Fairley was a conservative journalist. Um, people don't often realise that. They think the establishment's a left-wing concept, but it, it, it wasn't. And he coined it because of the... Cambridge spies at the Foreign Office who defected to the Soviet Union. And he felt that people in power had intervened to protect the reputations of their family and thus cover up what had actually happened. And that was what he thought the establishment was, these people looking out for each other and so on. And I think that missed uh, shared economic relationships, binding people together and shared set of mentalities. But the way I'd understand it is this. Democracy in this country was fought for at great cost great sacrifice by people. And it was a long-running battle over many generations and centuries against the powerful. But, but the problem is this. When those with power were resisting universal suffrage, they did so because they felt that if all had the right to vote, then that would end up challenging the wealth and power of those at the top of society. So Lord Salisbury was a conservative statesman in the 19th century. And he said uh, that giving the working class the vote 
uh, would mean that they would pass laws particularly favourable to themselves uh, with respect to taxation and property, as he put it, and detrimental to those uh, the interests of, 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 of other classes. Uh, the smaller the property, uh, the greater the threat, he said. The poorer the person, the, the more menacing it would be if you gave them the vote. In the end, those with wealth, those at the top of society, were consumed by a greater fear, which is if you don't accept people's right to vote, then you will be swept away by a violent social revolution. And so by 1918, all men and so women had the right to vote. But there, his concerns and the concerns of those at the top were not without foundation because democracy did mean a redistribution of wealth and power away from those at the top of society. It meant progressive taxation, a welfare state, uh, workers' rights, constraints on private property, state intervention, nationalisation, and so on. And, and that's what you got in the post-war period initially. These were constraints put on those at the top. Mm -hmm. But what we've had in the last 30 years is, if you like an attempt to grab back the wealth and power that was redistributed because of the advent of democracy. The checks, the restraints on those at the top are being stripped away, partly because they think there's no countervailing pressure. There's nothing, effect they're pushing an open door and, and there's nothing uh, to prevent them from doing so. So today's establishment are the institutions and ideas that legitimise that concentration of power in very small hands, the re-annexing of wealth at the top. In a country, so in the last five years, the wealth of the top 1,000 people has doubled, whilst working people have suffered the longest fall in living standards uh, since Benjamin Disraeli was prime minister in the 1870s. So for me, that's, you know, I mean, it's bound together by, you know, shared mentalities, as I, as I wrote about in the book. And one of them I boiled down to the advertising slogan of L'Oreal, uh, because I'm worth it. And that's a mentality which is a sense that those with wealth and power, those at the top, deserve their ever-growing wealth and power. And that's why politicians have plundered expenses. It's why bankers claim uh, you know, record bonuses despite plunging this country into economic disaster. Uh, and it's why businesses avoid tax on an industrial scale despite being completely dependent on state largesse. So, and, and that is a consequence of partly the defeat of the left, of the smashing of the trade unions, of countervailing pressure, the dismantling of the post-war restraints, that were the constraints that were put on wealth and power. So today's establishment, that's what it does. It's the institutions which exist, like the media, which help to, and the political elite, which help to enforce it. And then the ideas, people know them as neoliberalism, mm -hmm. but it's the sense that, you know, reducing taxation on, on those at the top, privatisation, deregulation and so on are for the good of society as a whole. But obviously those are ideas which rationalise and support the concentration of wealth and power in, in the hands of a very small group of people. But the other point is it's bound together in lots of other concrete ways, like a revolving door. So you end up with big accountancy firms who uh, facilitate tax avoidance, are seconded to the Treasury, draw up tax laws, tell their clients how to avoid the tax laws they've drawn up. But then you get you know the head of HMRC, the senior tax official, who does he end up working for? One of those accountancy firms, as do several new Labour politicians. Politicians go from, you know, one example, Jeff Hoon, Defence Secretary, uh, gives a contract to uh, um, to a uh, defence giant, Augusta Westland, who does he end up working for when he stands down? Augusta Westland as a director. Patricia Hewitt, Secretary of State for Health, guardian of the most treasured institution of the Labour Party, the NHS, who does she end up working for when she stands down? but as a director for private healthcare firm Bupa. Alan Milburn, former Trotskyist, used to run a bookshop of his own. It's called Days of Hope, though people 
knew it better as Haze of Dope for reasons I'm sure <laughs> many of you can speculate. But he stood down as Secretary of State for Health. Who did he end up working for? Private equity firms specialising in private healthcare firms, um, benefiting from the privatisation of the NHS. So yes, it's mentalities, but these are backed up by economic shared interests. Yes. You know, this revolving door helps to bind people together to a sense of we're all in this together. We're bound together by shared interests, which are on a collision course with those of the rest of us. And we talked about the ideas around which this to which this mentality attaches or around which it gathers. Um, you used the word neoliberalism. We should probably talk a bit more about that too. I want to put some pressure on that word. It's usually talked about in terms of open, free, unregulated markets, total liberation from the intrusion of the state, which should leave the market alone to do what it does. But is it also associated with a mentality? How far do you go with that term? I mean, some people talk about neoliberalism in terms of the way in which the market principle displaces all other political and moral considerations. So that it begins to form the frame, it gets inside. Yeah. It begins to become the way in which we understand ourselves, our place in the world. It becomes naturalized. Well, and that, that was the aim. Margaret Thatcher said, you know, economics is the method, but the, what, what she said she was trying to do is change people's souls, yeah. the way people thought, of course. That neoliberalism is a set of ideas in the post-war period, those we now know as neoliberals, those who, uh, you know, promote everything that's in the, pub, you know, the sense everything in the public realm should be handed over to uh, the private sector, for example, that the, profit, the centrality, the profit principle and, and, and the state is um, something which should be rolled back except to support markets in various ways. But these were principles which in the post-war period, was, if you believed in them, you're a pariah, you'd been defeated. In 1947, they gathered, those we now know as the neoliberals, in a sleepy Swiss town called Mont Pelerin, and they were very pessimistic. As pessimistic now as much of the current leftists, who, or the remnants of the left who feel, have a very similar approach. Because they, when they, Milton Friedman was one of them, a right-wing economist, Karl Popper was another, a philosopher, uh, and Friedrich von Hayek, of course, and they gathered in Mont Pelerin and they issued a statement saying the central values of civilization are under a threat. The state is on the march everywhere. Socialism, as they saw it, was on the march, including in Western Europe. And they felt in the next few decades, they thought, again, they'd lost. They, I mean, the ones I interviewed from that period, they said, you know, the best we hoped for was kind of Swedish-style social democracy, but it looked as though they'd been defeated. They'd been consumed. And what Milton Friedman said was that the way you get change was through a crisis. That's, that's, that's what opens up a possibility for, for change. But... It depended then, he said, on the ideas that were lying around at the time. And the politically impossible, he said, becomes the politically inevitable. And they, they create this huge, coherent set of ideas. But what they were conscious of is the way you... you they called it a ratchet, a counter-ratchet. They saw post-war Britain as a, a socialist ratchet, constantly shifting in a direction they abhorred. They wanted a counter-ratchet in a different direction. By saying the unsayable, you put pressure on their mainstream right-wing equivalents. The guy wouldn't go quite as far as that, however, mm -hmm. and then shift the terms of debate. Now, obviously, they were very well-funded, and they take reform today. It's a private, set, uh, it's a think tank which promotes privatisation. Uh, for example, of the NHS, funded in part by private healthcare firms. Uh, they did a report on 
why we should privatise prisons, who funded that, Secure Corps, who run private prisons. But it's easy to dismiss them as charlatans. They're not. They believe passionately sure. in what they say, but there it just so happens that their ideas coincide with the interests of those at the top. Oh, thank you very much. You're going to push pamphlets calling for us to have, you know, pay less tax and to hand over public assets to us. Well, I'll give you some money for that. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and, and push it. So it's, it's a marriage of, you know, convenience. It works very well. Uh, but, you know, the, the 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 advantage they always had over people like myself is, you know, they had very powerful interests on their side from the beginning who they could court, basically, smooth over dinners, talk to well-connected journalists, media moguls, and, and push their ideas. And they did so very cleverly. I mean, all of them. I think they did a very good job of what they did on their own terms. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's how they, they went from pariahs to yeah, these basically the, people, the common sense of our time. Yeah, these are the people that you call the outriders. And they're right at the beginning of the story you tell about how the current establishment and neoliberalism itself came into such prominence. Let me say a little bit about what you say here. The beliefs of the outriders coincided with those of wealthy elites. It was an extraordinarily effective marriage of convenience. A much broader coalition of interest was then built. And then you'll go on to say things like, the end of the Cold War is cleverly spun to mean the death of any alternative to free market capitalism. Globalization entrenched the idea that the will of the market reigned supreme. New labor reinforced its sense of instability. And a compliant media did its bit. Of course, you know, there's a constraint in a book like this. You're, you're laying out a narrative. But I wonder if you could say a bit more about the way that you see the relationship between historical process as it's unfolding at that time, what some people call an objective history, the oil crisis of 1973, the end of the Cold War, globalization on the one hand, and on the other, the neoliberals as a group, this group of mavericks, this group of outsiders or a movement which somehow seizes hold of that historical process and begins to steer it in its preferred direction. That seems like something that would be very desirable for any political movement, but it's extremely hard to achieve. It's also got a theory of history historical process built into the way you're talking about that. I mean, you can say a bit more about how you see that relationship. Well, my parents were left-wing activists in the 1970s. And at, the time, at that time, the left was consumed partly by a sense of triumphalism. They thought history was on their side. Capitalism was in retreat. It was a time of ferment, uh, ideologically, industrially, politically. Um, but what actually was happening, of course, as we know, the post-war consensus, as we know, broke down. It broke down for lots of reasons, like the collapse of Bretton Woods, the international financial framework, because of the oil shock of 1973, which triggered a wave of inflation, which swept right across the Western world, uh, symptoms of which were experienced in different ways in different countries, in this country partly by uh, a breakdown in industrial relations. And and so, every, I mean, partly left and right at that point agreed a lot of ever more influential sections of both of them, that the post-war consensus was dead and had to be abandoned. And that's what both began to agitate in order to do. Mm. You know, Peter Oborn, a conservative um, columnist people might know about, he writes for The Telegraph. And he said at the time, often it didn't, it wasn't entirely sure who'd come on top, you know, who would who would reign victorious. There were, it looks ob- obvious in hindsight, often these sorts mm. of processes, but... As he pointed out, and I wasn't there, but, you know, people like himself have pointed out, you know, there were times when, you know, I mean, this was a time in the 1970s when there were rumours of a potential military coup on the lines of what happened in Chile if things got out of hand. So it wasn't entirely sure. But what happened was, I mean, it was quite a dramatic shift. And that was because of, of course, the rise of a new right with a coherent set of ideas and ideologies uh, using very effectively a crisis 
and the collapse of the post-war consensus and a coherent set of ideas and policies that had been very cleverly stitched together over many, many years by these very pessimistic but ultimately triumphant, uh, triumphalist um, neoliberals. But then you've got all sorts of other pros and you've got the defeat, you've got a divided left, the Labour Party collapsed into acrimony division, the uh, obviously the SDP left the Labour Party, the anti-Tory vote was split and uh, in the midst of that the new right triumphed in, in many different ways. But then of course you had, you know, the smashing of the trade union movement which was always the bulwark, the backbone of the left, gave mm. it its rooting. Um, and the defeat of the miners was so important because they were always seen as the kind of forward phalanx of the Labour movement. They were seen to have defeated the governments of Ted Heath. They had a certain symbolism attached to them. Um, and although there'd been other defeats before that, like the Stockport messenger strike in 1981, steelworkers and so on, the defeat of the miners was seen as that crucial turning point. If the miners can't win, then nobody can win. And that, that after that, you got things like whopping afterwards, which kind of confirmed that narrative. But it was a sense of, you know, the trade, effectively, that sort of struggle was dead, defunct, um, and people were very demoralised. And we had a huge collapse in trade union membership as well, uh, anti-trade union laws and so on, but also mass unemployment. Mass unemployment doesn't promote militancy. If you've got 4 million unemployed, you've got at least another 4 million people scared of losing their jobs and... You know, employers go, you go on strike. There's a lot of people waiting out that, outside that door, take your job uh, instead. So those all helped as well. But as well as that, you had uh, the acceleration in the form of globalization, which seemed to hem in even a moderate, a modest social democratic government. You'll trigger a flight of capital if you so much as challenge the prevailing order. And of course, decisively, the collapse of Soviet totalitarianism, which I hope everyone would abhor in this room, but it was spun the end of the Cold War to mean, as Francis Fukuyama put it in the US, the end of history. That's it. That's your lot. There is no alternative, not just to capitalism, but to free market capitalism, red in tooth and claw. And all of that led to a total collapse in confidence amongst the left, amongst the labour movement, a sense of, there was a sense pushed by the neoliberal project, which had a dramatic and quite a short historical period triumph um, of a sense of total historical victory. So it wasn't a sense of we've won this battle. It was a sense of we've won the battle of history. This is the ultimate uh, end point of all human progress. That is the end. Um, as Midge Dector, a US neoconservative put it, it's time to say we won, goodbye. <laughs> I mean, that's how triumphalist they were. And the left on an international scale virtually collapsed. It was like the that section of the political spectrum had been sliced away almost entirely. So that sense of total ideological triumph was, of course, fundamental to the order we live in. Because then it becomes a sense of, you know, even if you don't like what has happened, as people don't, if you look at the polls, most people support public ownership, they support higher taxes on the rich and all the rest of it. But these become abstractions to most people because they're led constantly to believe there is no alternative, these are unrealisable. So you have a total demoralisation and defeatism setting amongst sections of the left, the disappearance of any coherent alternative, the smashing of an organised movement that can actually challenge those of wealth and power. Of course you're going have total triumphalism amongst the, those at the top. And that's why this establishment is far more triumphalist than any that has come before it. It's sense of it's more ideological than those that came mm -hmm. before it. It's bound, as I said, by this neoliberalism. And, and the reason for that is 
is that neoliberalism says we've won forever, there's no alternative ideologically, you can't organise a society in any other way than this. Anything, if you try to do so, you'll, you'll, you'll unleash chaos. So that's why, you know, it was that sense of historical triumph which is completely irreversible and which is what I reject. Yeah, there's quite a lot at stake. (laughs) There's quite a lot at stake for you here, isn't there, in as a political optimist, as someone who believes that change can not only can can happen, it can be brought about by people. Um, On the one hand, I think of a spectrum, on the one hand, neoliberalism as a set of beliefs which is held by people with shared interests and is imposed on people who don't share them from above. At the other end of that spectrum, you might have neoliberalism as as an ideology which shape subjectivity, which sets the conditions for what can be said, thought, lived. Um, you would position yourself, I presume, closer to the first part of the spectrum, you would see it, you'd be, your narrative of how it came about in the first place is full of contingencies, things that might not have turned out the way they did. Nothing was inevitable, nothing is inevitable. Certainly the triumphalism of the neoliberals is unearned. It could be displaced, it could be reversed. Um, there is a lot at stake there. And it isn't the feeling that a lot of people in this room, I imagine, however optimistic they are, would have about neoliberalism. Oh, top! Because everyone's going to leave thinking that. Which so. seems to have, which seems to have inserted itself, especially when you're talking about movements, not movements. When you're talking about historical phenomena such as globalization, when you recognise not just the single country development of neoliberalism in Britain, but the simultaneity of it with Reaganism in, in America. These can look like massive, even the global economic crisis of 2008. These can seem like processes which outstrip the contingencies that you're talking about, which involves some kind of larger historical process, which is irresistible, which does have the feeling of inevitability. History changes quite quick. I mean, this is the problem, isn't it? You can see the pessimism, can't you, with the neoliberals in 1947. You had the Soviet bloc, you had the expansion of of Soviet-style systems across Eastern Europe, you had the Chinese Revolution in the 1947, you had various African national liberation movements sweeping across Africa who... Who, whose loyalty lay more with the Soviet sphere of influence uh, than not. You had all sorts across Latin America and carrying on up to the 70s onwards, even into the 80s, like the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. Uh, you had across Western Europe various forms of social democracy, the total repeal of laissez-faire. I mean, look at that. Total triumph as far as they were concerned. Uh, of their enemies in different forms. Absolutely nowhere on earth whatsoever maintaining any allegiance to the sorts of 19th century laissez-faire economics that they uh, they harked back after. And that is why it's this is the problem when people talk, because the illusion of every single era is that it's here to last forever, mm-hmm. that the status quo is permanent and it will never, ever change. And it feels often, it feels quite, into- it feels almost all oppressive. You can't imagine... The, the society you live in being run in any different way. And that's reinforced by what's happening, not just in this country, but globally. I mean, as a point of fact, Latin America was the testing ground of neoliberal ideas, often under various uh, murderous junters, but unsurprisingly became the first continent to end up departing from those neoliberal tropes. I mean, it used to be the backyard of the United States and governments right across Latin America have rejected those underlying assumptions in in various different ways. So that just shows internationally it doesn't work out like that. It's not like, you know, it's it's actually less the case than it seemed for the neoliberals in 1947. Mm -hmm. There wasn't an entire continent which was uh, signing up to uh, free market dogma in that period. So it's even shakier than it seemed back then. 
And if you look at public opinion as well in this country, uh, and, and, you know, I'll give you one slice of the electorate. The slice of the electorate, they believe, and they're more likely to believe in public ownership of energy than the rest of the population. Uh, um, it's about, I think it's 70% of them, 67% of them want renationalisation of rail. They want higher taxes on the rich. They want a council house building programme. Uh, they want uh, rent controls. That's UKIP voters I'm talking about. That's what the polls say, UKIP. Those are well-known lefties. The difference is, I mean, Thatcher said in a sense to win people's hearts and minds, but, you know, back in the 1940s, if I was a supportive Milton Friedman of von Hayek, I wouldn't be able to say, well, the opinion polls show that most people want to privatise rail or energy or they want lower taxes on the rich. That wasn't the case. So actually, as you know, when I look for inspiration at their pessimism, their sense of defeat, actually, they were weaker. They were, you know, things seemed worse for them. They actually seem to people like myself in the modern era. And that wasn't at a time when, you know, I would argue that, you know, free market economics has been self-evidently discredited. They couldn't say that at the time. Mm. It looked as though, I mean, the difference is this time, most people agree free market economics has failed. They just don't see the alternative. In those times, it was a case of, no, these forms of state intervention are successful. Yeah. So I think that's a real important point I'd make. But also, you know, you look at this history of this country, you know, what people did, the traditions of this country the chartists, you know, the levelers going back, the suffragettes, early trade unionists, the toll the martyrs, people who fought against racism, homophobia, sexism, those who built the welfare state, the NHS, all the rest of it. All of these were fought, you know, they weren't, people didn't wake up one day and go, oh, I think I'll give people the NHS or, oh, I think I'll give women the vote. People had to fight for them, often at great personal cost. And it seemed, you know, it's called a struggle. It's not called a walkover. It's, it's hard, you know, it's, it involves sacrifice and cost. You're up against people who are powerful, who run society. You're, you're swimming against the current, which seems very hard. And sometimes it seems easier to stop swimming against, um, you know, against a strong current. And, and you've got all these people yelling at you, you're, you're wrong, you're going to lose, pointless. Um, but that's what always happened with these people. And they won. They won. I mean, power has always, you know, power can seize nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will, as Frederick Douglass put it. What needs to change is we need to have a coherent alternative that resonates with people, mm. that gives people more confidence. But as I say, you know, it's shakier than it looks. And our history shows you can win if you have sufficient determination and courage and hope and optimism and that's why i have no time whatsoever for the chin stroking cynicism which i'm afraid does not yours uh, but there are, there's nothing wrong with stroking your chin but which i think sections of the left indulge in and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because as soon as you promote a sense of you know the left loves relishing in its own defeats and analyzing why it's lost and all the rest of it and as soon as you engage in this cynicism well, you've lost anyway, I and mean, there's nothing you can do about it. You you sap anyone's will to to resist and change things, and that's why you know I'm in constant war with with, with cynicism and pessimism because it bollocks. Well, you <laughs> and you commit to that in the book. You very positively lay out in this surprising conclusion: the democratic revolution. Cheeky title. That's come up with a title, didn't I? Yeah, a manifesto for a party which doesn't exist at the moment. Really, you lay out positive demands. I list them. I'll, I'll, I'll list them here. Minimum wage to replace the living wage. No, living wage. Living wage to replace the minimum wage. Yeah, blimey. <laughs> I was living in utopia already there. Build high-quality social housing, reform union laws, full employment, full employment, cooperative ownership of public utilities, develop green industries, 
nationalised bailed-out banks, capital controls, increased top tax rates, get rid of tax avoidance, crack down on corporate lobbying, breaking up media monopolies, close the revolving door, devolve power to local councils. Now, you're often accused of reformism by your friends on the radical left, and you've said yourself that this list of demands would have looked perfectly standard 30 years ago, maybe even wishy-washy to certain parts of the radical left of the Labour Party. Very wishy-washy. But this list is unimaginably radical by the standards of today's Labour Party, whose set-piece promises at the party conference a couple of weeks ago, let us remind ourselves, this is a pre-election party conference, the pitch they're making for the next election, were to increase the minimum wage to £8. By 2020. By 2020. (laughs) And to build enough houses to catch up with the level of demand by 2025. Um, You've got the cut to to child benefit. Yeah. They're going to cut child benefit. Excellent. Now... I feel like I've sensed a a greater frustration on your part, actually, in the last couple of weeks since that conference and since, especially since last week's disastrous showing against UKIP in the North. So the question is inevitable. The question is for you, really. You know, how far are you, how far should we be willing to travel with the Labour Party at this point before we're forced to admit that it's become useless to the left, literally unserviceable to represent the people that it's supposed to represent. Well, firstly, the point with those demands, by the way, is I'm taking a leaf out of the book of the original neoliberals, which is you don't sketch out the society you want to live in. You start with a set of demands where you, you accept where people are and try and shift things in a different direction. And, and as soon as you do that, as soon as you force your opponents on the defensive, you've won already. You, you get them to defend paying people poverty wages in a country where most people in poverty and work earning their poverty, you've won the argument already. You don't kind of, you know, need to engage much further down the line with that. So, and it's the same with, you know, housing, Labour, I mean, you pointed out, you know, to meet housing need in this country, you'd have to build 250,000 homes a year. And they're talking about 200,000 homes a year by 2020, which will not meet people's yeah. needs in a, in a country where 5 million people are stuck on social housing waiting lists. So the point was to try and shift the conversation debate away from a society whose central organising principle is profit for a small group of people at the top, and instead to talk about a society built on the basis of people's needs and aspirations, which is what I believe in. So, you know, the point I was making in the conclusion is actually, you know, I want to go further. And the point is you have to shift the terms of debate to, to, to allow more radical ideas to become possible. Yeah. And, and, and that's for me chipping away at the triumphalism of the system in which we live by using demands which are very popular already, where we've already won the argument. We don't need to convince people we've won the argument. They think it's a good thing to happen, even if they don't lack the, they, they lack the confidence any politician would be able to do it. But they are, that is where people are. So it's a case of, you know, there's legitimacy to these demands. It would mean a society more run in the interest of people's needs, though not entirely by any stretch of the imagination. But that in itself is a victory. The point about Labour, look, Labour was set up in on the basis of that those at the top already had their parties, the Liberals and the Conservatives, uh, and working people should have a voice. They should have a party of Labour, uh, which is controversial at the time because people, many felt their, their interests were best served by being tied to the Liberal Party, the Lib Labbers as they were known. And Keir Hardy was the first socialist MP in Britain and he turned up to the House of Commons in the traditional working class garb of the time and and the, the police officer stopped him and said, you're here to work on, on the roof. And he said, no, I'm here to work on the floor. <laughs> and, that, and that was the beginning of a new generation of, 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 of members of parliament. Um, and, you know, for me, most people in those days worked in 
well, as personal servants or, or in factories or in steelworks or in mines. People are more likely to work in supermarkets and call centres and offices. They, they still need a political voice. That link to some degree remains with the Labour Party, weakened though it has been. Um, and, you know, it's fascinating how it's demonised, partly to demonise the unions, um, because including by the Tories, the media and some of Labour's own senior figures, Labour should be proud of the fact they're bankrolled by mm -hmm. supermarkets and call centres and care workers and, and all the rest of it. Whilst uh, the Tories are funded by bankers, hedge fund managers, legal loan sharks, and yet obviously they get very little scrutiny of it because of the country we live in. The problem is, of course, that, of course, Labour is not offering anything like a coherent, inspiring alternative that resonates with people, partly because of a lack of uh, pressure from below. And that's how I think things change, that pressure from below. It worked on the bedroom tax. People organised the bedroom tax, one of the most vile policies inflicted by a government against its own people. Mostly poor, disabled people have to pay up money they don't have, downsize to smaller properties that don't even exist. A woman got in touch with me. She had a disabled daughter. A disabled daughter died. Thus, she had a spare room. Thus, she had to pay the bedroom tax. And people felt they couldn't win that argument. But they, and the, the poll said they weren't going to win that argument, but they took to the streets, they organised and gave people a platform and they turned public opinion around and forced the Labour leadership to commit to repealing that bedroom tax. So it shows you can get pressure from below. We've not got enough by any stretch of the imagination. And the result of that is Labour offering this uh, insipid, this just vacuous, you know, you know, kind of trim, trimming here and there. Um, which is inspiring absolutely uh, no one. And the reason I'm angry about it is because the right-wing populism of UKIP is filling a vacuum. And it's one thing we've always said, that the ideology partly of Labourism means that if you criticise Labour, particularly in the, you know, there's a sense of loyalty, you've got to, if, if criticising Labour undermines the fight against the despised Tories. The one thing you don't want to allow to happen is a Tory government to come to power. And I agree with that, you know, and, 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 and the worst Labour government is always better than the best Tory government, whatever the hell that is. But there's a worse problem we now have. There's a worse problem. And that is the rise of right-wing populism in the shape of UKIP. So we don't just now have a situation where we have to confront the threat of the Conservatives who are in long-term decline, who haven't won an election in this country since 1992, who every time they've won an election since 1955 is on a lower share than the time before, who used to win in Sheffield and Manchester and Liverpool and Scotland and now have been almost driven from those places. Now we have the threat of right-wing populism, uh, you know, led by that rare breed of politician, a privately educated white male ex-city broker, uh, funded by Tory donors, uh, whose latest two recruits are privately educated Conservative MPs who worked in the city, uh, posturing as uh, opposed to the establishment whilst trying to turn people against foreigners, privatise, you know, those, those, those kind of maverick policies, privatising and cutting taxes on the rich and scrapping workers' rights. But this is the problem. This is why I'm, I'm, I'm losing patience, as others are. Because if Labour fail to offer a coherent alternative, it's not just the threat that people won't come out and vote and thus the Tories uh, end up back in number 10 by default, but you also end up with people who should be voting for a Labour Party offering a coherent alternative, a Labour Party where there's still a union link which should give representation for working people. You end up with those people supporting UKIP. That is unforgivable. It can't be allowed. And that is why I think 
people need to speak out a lot louder. It's less a sense of, you know, kind of indulging what the Labour leadership do on various issues, but actually to get louder and angrier and, and, and demand a more inspiring, coherent alternative. Because if we don't do that, then the right-wing populism of UKIP is going to consume large sections of this country. That is a lot at stake. So that's why we have to confront it. Okay, so before we go to the audience, because I know there are going to be a lot of questions, I'll just ask you how you see the way forward at this point then. In this book, with that last chapter in particular, I suppose you're offering yourself as an outrider of your own. You're putting pressure on... Well, okay, no, perhaps not. Let's not put it that way. Just as offering a manifesto which puts pressure on the left, which includes and maybe is directed at the Labour Party in order that it can become one day re-electable. That's a model that we could think about. The alternative, though, and what someone from further left, from the radical left spectrum might say to you, is that that's not the way it's going to play out. The way it's going to play out is something like in Spain or Greece. What you're going to see is a worse crisis than 2008, because bad as it was, actually it wasn't that bad, and the neoliberals were able to absorb it perfectly ably. What you will see is another crisis. It will come around again. It will be worse next time. And then you will see more contentious politics, more insurgency, and you'll end up with a situation where popular movements, a 15M or a Syriza, overtake the Labour Party and take the place in a much more febrile democratic situation than obtained before. How do you see? I, I, I think that's a really interesting sense? proposition. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not an outright, and, and, and partly I don't never adopt that sort of mentality, that sort of approach, because, you know, for me, change happens not through the goodwill and generosity of those above, but through struggle and sacrifice, people organising from below, often at great cost to themselves. It's not individuals, including kind of gobby, pee-pee-besset-looking writers appearing on TV who change things. It's people organising collectively as a movement mm -hmm. and forcing those with power to concede. So it's a different model. You know, people who want a different world aren't going to do that by schmoozing journalists and politicians over coffee. Um, they're they're going to do it by making those with power fear them, which is what people in power should do. Um, and, you know, that point, power can seize nothing without a demand, it never did, it never will. So is that people need to organise from below. So the role of people, I mean, is always limited, of course it is. It's and, to stir that consciousness, though. Is that the well, idea? Well, I mean, you know, I've always said, and I'll say this, you know, people like myself have a very limited, modest role. I'd, I'd be abandoning my basic politics, my principles, if sure. I thought any other way any other way because my belief my view of history is that change happens by people collectively organizing it's not individuals individuals can have a role if they're connected to a broader movement and a broader struggle um but it doesn't happen by you know a few angry books about injustice as much as that's an excuse to people for to talk and to challenge the way we live and and to to, to talk about who runs the show i mean the reason i you know i wrote this book is because since this crisis began, anger has been ruthlessly redirected at people's neighbours yeah. uh, with the politics of envy. The idea if you're a, a low-paid worker whose wages have been cut by your boss, whose tax credits are cut by the government, that you should, instead of being angry with them, you should envy the unemployed person living in luxury in a, wide, in a mansion made out of widescreen TV sets. That if you're a private sector worker, that instead, you know, where your pensions have been decimated, that instead of being angry at your boss, you should envy the nurse or the teacher whose pension is still intact. And if you can't get... And afford a, a, a home you can live in with your family because governments won't build council housing or you can't get a secure job because they've been stripped out of your, the economy. You should be angry with foreigners and immigrants for getting what should rightfully be your job instead or your home. The politics of envy. So that has to be redirected. Any successful, successful new politics that challenges 
the order in which we live, has to stop people focusing their anger at their neighbours, as we're constantly encouraged to do, but to instead refocus that anger at those I regard, and I hope others do, as responsible for the situation that this country's in. So that's the press, and that's that's the only purpose to write this book. You know, I don't care if people agree with me or not. Just by having a discussion about power and the powerful, that is the point of the exercise. But the point you made about Spain and Greece is you had social democratic governments came to power, they unleashed austerity, and they destroyed themselves. That's literally what happened. Series, uh, uh, sorry, the, in the case of Greece, uh, you got the Greek equivalent, uh, PASOK, they came to power, implemented austerity. PASOK are now 5% in the opinion polls. They've been supplanted by Syriza, which is now by far leading in the opinion polls. And if there was a snap election, now they'd win. And another is is Spain. And I've been working, I've done stuff with Podemos. I did a, a conference with them in London the other week. It means we can in English. And again, the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party came to power, implemented, you know, they implemented a load of austerity completely demoralised their base. The right wing came to power not because they increased their vote, because people stayed at home. And now Podemos has tapped into that and they got five MEPs at the last European election and they're level pegging with the Spanish socialists in some polls. So that is a warning, you know. For me, the whole point of the Labour Party is pragmatic. I mean, the electoral system dictates that new parties aren't practical, in my view, uh, as things stand. But also there's the trade union link, which exists. Um, and all new parties have failed um, without exception in British history uh, since the Labour Party was founded. But look at Spain and Greece. There's a warning there. And, you know, the Labour Party has no automatic right to, you know, kind of represent that section of the country. Mm. And if they do that, then they will be swept away. The danger is that unless we get our act together, that vacuum will be filled by right-wing populism along the lines of UKIP. So we do have to get our act together. But we will, so it'll be fine in the end anyway. Okay, thanks, sorry. (laughs) All right, to the audience now. Um, There's a microphone somewhere, I think. Just one, is it, Claire? Hi, thank you very much. Um, To me, uh, uh, um, the most radical party at the moment, and perhaps I'm mistaken, seems to be the Green Party. And uh, Labour itself this week, you know, appointed a, one of its senior frontbench people to sort of think how Labour could deal with that. Why, why, why does no one mention the Green Party? Why does it, despite the fact that it polls equivalently the, currently to the Liberal Democratic Party, why, why is it forgotten? <laughs> Let's try and take maybe two questions at a time and we'll get through them quicker that way. There's a lady in. Thank you. Hello, Aaron. I mean, this great triumphalism of the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, it coincided, didn't it, with huge unemployment for a start? You know, you know, wasn't that a problem? And the other big problem, of course, is, um, is housing. There's a permanent housing crisis. But you see, the, um, what we've ended up with was the, um, the division of the working class through homeownerism. I mean, do you not see that that... I mean, you know how I would address that problem, but... Um, would it be the land value tax? It would be, but yeah. because it's land values that are actually behind the housing yeah. crisis and uh, they are un- they're shared unequally, you know. That. Okay. And um, perhaps one more. Um, do you see the establishment as monolithic? And if, <laughs> if not, uh, are any fissures in it significant? Thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, the first point about the Green Party. Well, look, I work with the Green Party all the time. And you mentioned the People's Assembly at the beginning. And that is a coalition of the Green Party, people in the Labour Party, 
Left Unity is another one. People in no party, trade unions, campaigners for disabled people, el- elderly people, young people, and so on. Uh, so I've always, I mean, with Caroline Lucas, I've, can't, I've lost count of the number of platforms I've shared with her, and I'm a big uh, supporter of her. Uh, and I think the Greens have some great people in them and great activists. I think, obviously, for me, you know, for me, my politics are very Labour movement orientated. I think the Labour movement is what, if you like, provides rooting in the lives of working people in an organised way. And the Green Party don't have a direct relationship with that Labour movement. I mean, they have lots of very progressive policies I support, but they lack that um, that rooting. And, and and that's why I always support, and you know, I see them as allies and friends, but it's a slightly, it's a, it's, it's a different approach. It's a different analysis of politics. Because for me, it has to be about organising working people um, on the basis of shared economic interests, but then you know, I mean, the green, you know, the green, the greens always go, oh, well, whenever you promote these policies, you basically promote the green policy platform, um, which is you know often the case because the greens have a lot of very progressive policies I support. They're a coalition though; they're very different. They've got a range of different people in them because they are, above all else, an environmentally focused party, and as of yet, they haven't managed to win over perhaps large chunks of, of working class people, particularly those who unfortunately UKIP in some cases have have appealed to. Um, and I think the challenge for the Greens as a party is, is to demonstrate they can win over working people because often their voters tend to be slightly more affluent. They're not that, that and, and that is a problem. So yes, I agree. And I, I always push, you know, I support Caroline Lucas. I support a lot of the Greens. But I guess my approach to politics is that it has to be labour movement orientated. Otherwise, I think it, it, it will fail to win over large sections of working people and be rooted in the concerns and issues that affect working people on a daily basis. But as I say, I'll always see them as allies, friends, comrades, all the rest of it. And the amount of events I've done with the Greens, you know, I could go on forever. So, yes, and I agree the way they should be, the way they're treated by the media is unacceptable. Compare them to how they've been treated to, to UKIP. You know, they run a council. They've had an MP for ages. And yet they've been MEPs for donkey's years. And yet they have nowhere near the coverage that UKIP have been afforded. And I think that speaks volumes. And the fact they've been thrown out the leaders debate is outrageous. So, of course, on all those issues, I always support the Greens and cheer them on. Um, The point about housing. Yeah, of course. Um, Oh, the point you made, obviously, mass unemployment. I mean, I mean, this is what's interesting. The post-war consensus was that I don't want to return to. You can't return to it. It's a different world. But it's fascinating that, you know, you've had three major economic crises since the neoliberal period began, early 80s, early 90s, and the current one. You didn't have those big economic collapses during that that whole period. You've had less, far less economic growth. The peak of economic growth in this country was the 1960s, when it had the highest, that hated period of statism and strong unions and high taxes on the rich. Strongest economic growth in the history uh, of this country in, in modern times. Uh, and that growth is far more evenly distributed and you had far more people in secure work. So yes, obviously, you know, on its own terms, on those terms, it's failed drastically to meet people's basic needs and mass unemployment. And the point about housing, you're quite right, was the transformation of housing from a need into an asset. And we have to change that. And yes, the policies of housing has been used to divide people. When council housing was first introduced on a mass scale, under Nye Bevan, the point was that it was always supposed to be of better quality than private housing. That was the aim. Um, but also, it was just to promote mixed communities. 
Nye Bevan said he wanted to recreate the lovely features of the English and Welsh village where the butcher and the doctor live next door to each other. And what's happened with right to buy is you end up with what's left of council housing reserved to those most in need, which promotes ghettoisation and divided communities. And it also promotes divisions amongst working people. Of course it does, because you end up ghettoising people. And that's been accelerated by cuts to housing benefit and all the rest of it under this government. And of course I support, as I always do, whenever you bring up the land value tax, I always support the land value tax. And I agree that's uh, an example of a, of, of a policy which could, again, shift the terms of debate as well. So we need to talk about it more loudly. There are some people, even at the Andy Burnham, support the land value tax. Didn't he? Yeah, he did. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, did he? Well, I'm sure you're very persuasive, so I can see why. You probably turned up to lots of meetings and talked about it, and he gave in. Yeah, anyway, great. And the monolithic establishment. Oh, yeah, sorry, monolithic. No, no, sorry, that was rude. No, not at all. And the point I made, the point I make at the very outset is that actually, you know, these are powerful interests with often disparate. They're often disparate and often their, their interests come into conflict with each other. The establishment is where those interests and those worlds intersect with each other, either consciously or unconsciously. So it's almost like the common points of uh, agreement and the common shared interests. That's what binds them together. On various issues of individual, I mean, I suppose the EU is a classic example of that. One section of the, of the establishment is very pro-EU, the other is against it. And... What's interesting about the EU is the wing that opposes it feel that it imposes, because originally it was people on the left who opposed what was then the European Economic Community because they felt it basically were imposed capitalist mantras and free market, well, yeah, well, there we go. And that and, and, that, and, and various forms of industrial interventionism and, and so on. So it was always consistently opposed by, you know, people like Tony Benn back in the day, always opposed entry into the European Economic Community. But what changed was the trauma of Thatcherism was such that people felt we're never going to get any progressive social legislation uh, domestically as things stand. The, the best bet we've got is through the back door, effectively, from Brussels. And when in the late 1980s, because Thatcher obviously supported entry into the EEC, uh, but she then complained about various pieces of, like the social chapter, which she felt was a threat to what she had established. And she you know, said, we, we haven't rolled back the frontiers of the state only for them to be reimposed, uh, but at European level. Um, and, and the conflict you've got is where people, this section of the establishment, believe it, it, it threatens the settlement which was established, which they depend on. And you can see this with the Transatlantic Investment Partnership, TTIP, which is being imposed at the moment. It's an agreement uh, being negotiated between the EU and the United States, giving businesses the same rights um, as nation states, allowing them to sue governments on the basis of a loss of future profits. Uh, and Australia negotiated a similar agreement with Hong Kong. The Asian wing of, oh, they tried to introduce plain cigarette packaging. The Asian wing of Philip Morris then sued them on the basis that that would limit their future profits. And that's what, that's what that agreement does. But who isn't complaining about TTIP? Well, the Conservatives are supporting it entirely. They talk about sovereignty being threatened, vetoing the treaty in 2011, not because it threatened national sovereignty, because it threatened the interests of the city, which they conflated the interests of the city with national interests instead. When it comes to this, a policy which just grants loads of powers to businesses, big businesses, and threatens our national sovereignty, oh, they'll support it. UKIP. Don't hear them ranting about TTIP. One of their MEPs said, 
oh, we'll have to support it. We, we'd have negotiated this with the US ourselves, so we'll vote for it in the European Parliament. It shows their whole so-called Euroscepticism is a total farce because it's not based on defending national sovereignty. It's where they perceive the EU, EU as threatening the interests of big business. And if it doesn't, then they'll support any attempt to infringe our sovereignty. So that is a classic example of where that division opens up. But as I say, on the common key issues... Obviously, the establishment is broadly uh, united, but they'll, you've, you've always had these fissures and conflicts which have existed. Okay, another little group. Um, I've been a Labour Party member for about 20-odd years, and we're out every weekend campaigning, canvassing. We were out today because there's a by-election in our uh, constituency. There's, we've got activists out working every weekend. Uh, and I'm just wondering, are we wasting our time within the structure... <laughs> I don't mean are we wasting our time, but within the structure of the party that we belong to at the moment, um, can we do it with the structure of the party that we've got at the moment? That's it, really. Yeah, great question. And the front row. Yeah. What was your name, by the way? So I should take people's names. Totally. Totally um, thanks for your talk. I mean, I agree with all of the premises you set out in your book. Um, and... I'm a Labour supporter and would love to see a genuinely left-wing radical Labour Party. Feels like a bit of a fantasy at the minute. Um, and your solution is that we need to get out there to agitate from underneath, which, again, ideally I would agree with. Yet we've got the example, recent examples of tuition fees and Iraq, where people did take the streets and campaigned, protested peacefully, and were not listened to, you know, no, no, ch no change happened. So why is your suggestion that we, why do you think it'll be any different this time, is my question. Okay. Um, I was wondering, from talking just to my own colleagues and friends and family, what you talk about uh, having this sense of unquestioning, we can't imagine anything being any other way, I find very strongly people who perhaps haven't read your book or don't think much about this are just completely brainwashed. How do we go about changing that as ordinary people when you've got the media so kind of clouded in their agendas and points of view? Have you got a kind of message of hope for people like me who just want to even convince just our immediate circle? What can we do? Apart from getting to buy your book. Your, no, don't buy that. <laughs> um, Adele. Start with Tony. No, no, I don't think you are wasting your time. I mean, partly feeds into all of those questions, but... Anything that's engaged in organising with other people to try and change things is a good thing. And if people believe, because of the trade union link and all the rest of it, that there's still a battle to be fought in the Labour Party, I think there is still a battle to be fought there and to organise and all the rest of it, then that's a good thing. And I'd recommend people organise and do exactly that. If they can't stomach it, you know, there's the Green Party, for example. I mean, as long as people join something and organise, then I'm happy. But to organise with like-minded people and there are lots of people, Labour activists, you know, the consensus amongst them is very different from those which the leadership subscribe to. Often it's this sense of, I mean, if we look, and there was the issue of democracy in the party, in, in the last government, if activists had been listened to, we wouldn't have had the Iraq war. We wouldn't have had the abolition of the 10p 
rate. We wouldn't have had tuition fees. All these things which have completely undermined support for the Labour Party, as it turns out. Um, so, you know, it would have been for their own good, their ben to benefit themselves if they'd done that. But I think if people in the Labour Party who are there already and believe that is an effective route, then they should organise together in the way... Take the bed I mean, the bedroom tax is a really striking example of that. Because what happened is Labour activists and non-Labour activists organised together in their communities, gave a platform to those affected, and they not only won over public opinion, but they forced the Labour leadership to commit to repealing the bedroom tax. I think if that works there, then why can't it work on issues like the banks, living wage, public ownership, workers' rights? You know, it just needs a bit more determination. It needs to build coalitions and all the rest of it. But that principle still applies and yeah, you know, to get rid of as well, the other point I'd make is, and that's the point I made, the worst Labour government is always better than the best Tory government. The point I'd also make is at the moment with all these attacks going on, you kind of expect it from a Conservative party and that partly breeds a sense of resignation because what's the point in organising? It's the Tories. doesn't matter how much you organise or yell at them, they'll still do it. If this Labour Party comes to power instead in its current form and carries on doing those sorts of attacks, people go, what? We didn't, you don't vote for the Labour Party to get these sorts of direct attacks on us. And actually, I think that would encourage people to organise more and actually to try and change things. So it's worth booting out the Tories, partly just for that reason, because if the, if the, if, if the Tories were to come into number 10 again, it will be so dispiriting and demoralising for people. That sense of you know, they'll have this sense of vindication and all the rest of it. It'll be quite crippling for people. So it's important for that not to happen. And then, you know, if then the Labour Party comes to power, the the challenge then is to to organise. That's the beginning almost. That's when it all starts on these sorts of issues. To say, look, people wanted a difference. They want something different from what they've had. Uh, austerity has failed on its own terms, including obviously the impact on working people who Labour was set up to represent. If we don't get our act together, then the populist rights, they're um, chewing at our heels. So I think that's what we need. Um, people to organise, in, in your case, brilliantly organising, leafleting, all the rest of it, to make, to organise with other people within the Labour Party on those sorts of issues. And if there are people in the room who can't stomach that, then do it through the Green Party. I think it's still effective if these people are organising and making their voices heard, uh, even if we don't agree on the strategies. But that's why I support the People's Assembly because it's bringing these broad coalitions together so we don't have people's front of Judea-style conversations where people rant at each other about their treachery because they've joined the wrong organisation. And, and I think as long as people look outwards and build links with other organisations, it doesn't matter what party... That, well, it does, obviously not the Conservatives or the Liberal Democrats, but as long as they build coalitions with other people, then that's that for me is, you know, as, that, that is... is, is as, as far from a waste of time as is possible. You're doing a great job. So don't kick yourself. Um, the second point about what's the point, that was it, wasn't it? If we, we keep organising, nothing changes. Well, I gave, I gave the example of the bedroom tax. Another example, UK and Cut. Who was talking about tax avoidance before they came along? It was an issue on the fringes. And what they did is they occupied shops and businesses engaged in mass tax avoidance, and they won in the sense that they pull, forced it on the agenda. Obviously, we haven't got rid of tax avoidance, but it was a victory. That in itself is a huge victory. You know, I spoke, I was talking last week, and there's a UK and Cut activist who put their hand up and went, oh, but, you know, the Tories now, they've co-opted tax avoidance, so we've kind of lost. But I couldn't understand that, because that's a victory. That shows if you organise, you can force those with power 
to talk about your issue, even the Conservative Party. So that, for me, is it shows how all people organising, being savvy and clever about it, can change the terms of debate. And if we can do it with a bedroom tax and tax avoidance again, I mean, there's only recent examples, but why can't we do it right across the board? Not least, given, as I've said, public opinion on these issues isn't where the establishment is at all. You know, on things like a living wage, on public ownership and um, on tax justice, higher taxes on the rich, all the rest of it, the public is not where the establishment is. So if people organise on those sorts of issues, people will go, well, I agree with them. They're not going to go, oh, I'm not sure about that. I need some more convincing. So we've got to stop. We've got to get over our sense of defeatism and cynicism, a sense, oh, nothing will ever change. They'll just do whatever regardless. I mean, the point you made about about the anti-war movement, well, you know, know, this country would have bombed Syria um, basically on the same side de facto as the people now were bombing, um, sort of slightly Orwellian last year, and that was partly because of what the anti-war movement did. Uh, obviously, they didn't stop the war in Syria, which continues unabated and is killing huge numbers of people. But I think that intervention would have been an absolute calamity. I think it would have been, uh, you know, Syria, you look at it and think it can't get any worse than it already is. But tragically, I think it, it could have done. You know, ISIS could have been in, in, in the capital, Damascus, by now. Uh, so I think that isn't the case with the anti-war movement. I think we could have bombed Iran without the anti-war movement. People forget about that. For years, people were agitating. It seemed like inevitable Tehran was going to get bombed. But that didn't happen. And that's because of that global anti-war movement. So often you look at battles which are which are lost, apparently, but actually in the wider scheme of things, they're not. So I wouldn't have that sense of, oh, there's no point protesting, nothing will change. On tax avoidance, on um, the bedroom tax, on issues of war and peace, they have because people organised. And if we can do it on those issues, we can do it on a lot of other issues if we have the determination. So there's a winning people over. Well, I mean, as I said, it is having a bit more confidence about it. I mean, I wrote this uh, column a few months ago, which was an open letter to UKIP voters. And the point I made is actually we agree on more than actually your leader does because your leader wants to privatise the NHS. That's what UKIP, you know, deputy leader calls for the literally the abolition of the National Health Service. They want to scrap what remaining rights exist in this country. They want lower taxes on the on the rich. For ages, they were floating a, fl- a flat tax, which would put supermarket workers in the same tax bracket as multi-billionaires. And, you know, for me, it's, you know, who's what I say to them is, I'm not going to maybe win you over, UKIP voters anyway, on, 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 you know, how great immigration is probably very easily but i would ask you this who is more responsible for the mess this country's in is it the bankers who plunged us into economic disaster is it uh, the tax dodgers is it the poverty bane bosses or is it the polish fruit picker or the lithuanian nurse or the you know nigerian cleaner i mean it doesn't you know, and i think that directing people's anger where they should be directed you know to ask people i meet young people in zero hour contracts jobs it's a return to this supposedly bygone era. Dockers used to march to the yard and put their hands up hoping to get work. Well, now young people get a text message at 6am in the morning telling them they forget any hours that day. No pension rights, forget about that. No paid leave. And I think on those sorts of issues, people are with us. They just need to be angry at the right people instead of being angry with their neighbours. So we've got to shift the terms of debate so it's always always focusing on these people at the top. You have to pay your taxes. Why, do, why don't these people pay their taxes? You work hard every day, so why aren't you being paid a proper wage? Uh, you know, you, you, why can't you get a secure job? Why can't they give you that basic security which they enjoy themselves? 
Uh, why do you bail out the bankers and they carry on as they ever did with no change whilst you have to suffer the consequences of what they did to this country? We've got to be more populist about it. And I think that's the problem. Often on the, on the left, there's you talk, people talk in this rhetoric which just doesn't appeal to people. And most people don't think in terms of left or right. They think in terms of issues to be addressed in a way that's convincing and coherent, that's spoken in a language they understand and that resonates with their experiences. And we need to get, those of us who want change, we need to get into that habit far more. The right often do it. They talk in common sense. And that, that point about stories as well, because George Lakoff, a political linguist, said, that the right use stories and the left use facts and statistics. Stories like, you know, the scrounger down the road in mansion made off widescreen TV sets with 50 kids on the go. And that's guaranteed to make their readers blood boil. And you can yell at them about how much uh, benefit food's only worth 0.7% of spending until you're blue in the face. But they go, what about this cheeky bastard in the house? <laughs> and that's why we have to change the debate. We have to talk about the, you know, like, the young person who sends in CV after CV every single day and doesn't even get a response. People getting benefits sanctioned, which means their benefits are stopped, like a 60-year-old army veteran in Manchester called Stephen Taylor, who is selling poppies for the Royal Legion and, and, and who couldn't get a job, including in the supermarket he's selling poppies at, had his benefits stopped for three weeks on the basis his volunteering for the Royal Legion showed he wasn't looking hard enough to get work. But that's the thing. These stories, we don't use them enough. You know, and I'll always use statistics till I'm blue in the face, but it doesn't win people over. We've got to use those far more. The people stuck on social housing waiting lists because governments won't build housing. We've got to humanise it far more, that story. And I think if we do that more, then we'll win people over because you can't argue with a six-year-old army veteran who's selling poppies and having his benefits taken away from him because he's not looking hard enough. Hello. Um, so, first of all, thanks um, for talking to us today. Um, I've got your books. They're very good. Um, <laughs> Hit <and> miss. <laughs> um, you mentioned um, right at the start about Milton Friedman and that change comes in a crisis. And at the time, the right were ready through their outriders and all that. They were ready when the change came. Just thinking back to the uh, 2008, the financial crisis, the crisis. And... And there was an argument at the time that the left were found wanting. How much were the left found wanting? And how much was it the establishment, the media, who were crowding out the arguments of the left? And therefore, kind of just following on from what you've just said about stories, how much um, are those stories, you know, finding a place for those stories? We can get those stories, but, you know, if the media don't cover those stories, we're stuffed in a way. Possibly. And I'm not being cynical at all. I'm no, very no, kind all, of no. positive about the kind of... No, yeah. Okay. What's your name, by the way? It's Ross. Cheers, Ross. Uh, I was going to ask a question a second back a month or so. If... Um, going back to Scotland, I have to say this, because um, if Scotland got independence, how much would the English establishment have been shocked? Regardless of what you think about independence, I've just wondered whether it actually would have sent shockwaves into what the English establishment could do and couldn't do. Thank you very much. Um, I regret that I haven't yet read your book. However, My and parents may... haven't even bought it. So. Okay, well, there you go. Um, this may be a generational question, but I find it extraordinary that through all this, nobody has mentioned New Labour and the betrayal of the, the uh, Blair regime and what that has done to people's confidence and connection to the Labour Party. I appreciate your energy and the wonderful way you're thinking about collective action. 
but uh, we were decimated in terms of our confidence. And it's very hard to think about reconnecting the Labour Party because some of them seem to be just as much a part of the establishment as uh, the people that you are discussing. And I think the joint betrayal by Blair and by Obama has had a terrific effect, at least on our generation. Um, great questions again. Um, Ross, the point about 2008 was, I think there was a sense of schadenfreude on parts of the left at the time, which was, ah, oh, look, neoliberalism has been discredited. It's screwed now. Look at it. On its own terms, it's failed. The biggest nationalizations in human history undertook by comrade George W. Bush in the United States of America. Um, but the problem was, I do think it comes back to what Milton Friedman said. It depends on the ideas lying around. Obviously, those who want a different sort of society are never going to get a fair hearing by the media. You know, if you oppose the status quo, you're generally marginalised, ignored or demonised. If you're too young, you're naive. If you're too old, you're a dinosaur. If you're too poor, it's envy. If you're too rich, you're a hypocrite. You literally can't win. Um, but at the same time, the left, as I discussed, it, it had lost its confidence and been demoralised for the reasons, you know, the defeats of the 80s, the way the end of the Cold War was spun, globalisation. So because of that, there wasn't, you know, why would though the left have, have thrived in the way maybe some of us w would have wanted. You know, neoliberalism can stagger around half-dead zombie-like with no one to administer the killer blow, which is exactly what's happened. It's not like it's loved. People don't aren't embracing this order. They're just often resigned to it because they can't see a coherent alternative in sight. And that's the problem. So I think that's the reason, if you like, we've been found wanting. And that's why... I support any initiatives like this. We're talking about class, the think tank, and the whole point of that is to get these various academics and economists who are dissenting from this order to, to bring them together and, and create a kind of coherent alternative that actually we can then translate into English that actually then, but actually shows, no, no, there, these are alternatives that can work and function. Um, and until we do that, then it doesn't matter if you get a crisis. That doesn't automatically, a crisis of capitalism, I think we've now learned, does not automatically lead to a renaissance of the left. Because, and I think that was the sense almost that you had back in 2008. But that's why we're getting our act together. We are getting our act together. And I said, you've got examples like Podemos and Syriza in Greece and Spain, where they are doing that and they are getting actually popular support. So it is completely feasible. Just, you know, it takes a bit of work. Scotland. Um, well, look, I think it was, it was this great carnival of democracy. Democracy's been in decline for decades in this country. Ever-falling turnout, particularly amongst working-class people. There's a huge gap in turnout between middle-class professionals and unskilled workers, for example. And uh, young people often not voting. And what that referendum did is mobilise people who just stopped voting altogether. Shock to the Labour Party. How much of a shock to the Labour Party? Well, yeah, it would have been a huge shock. For you know, for me, it was always obviously the right to Scottish national self determination. It wasn't the place of kind of London based uh, writers like me to start lecturing the Scottish people about what they should do. My parents live up in in in, in Edinburgh. I, I used to live in Falkirk. You can tell from my impenetrable Scottish accent. But but I think clearly, you know, there was there was the panic amongst the establishment was that if we lose Scotland, then we'll lose a lot of our prestige internationally. John Major was on radio, Radio 4, saying exactly that. It'll undermine our alliance with the US. We won't be treated as seriously internationally. So it was all driven by prestige for them. That was their main threat, their main fear. Um, I mean, for me, you know, whatever happened, I would have argued for Scottish, English and Welsh people to unite against those at the top. 
because there's a long tradition of the welfare state, the NHS, all the rest of it was built by those people. I don't think the SNP was offering a genuine break from what we have. I don't think cutting corporation taxes exactly a threat to neoliberal uh, ideology uh, and the danger was they were offering not real independence but dependence on you know monetary alliance with a rump of england and wales which could have shifted to the right uh which uh because you know because of the relative weight of the conservative party might have been greater uh but without any political control over what they did so, but then again, I always said to people who are supporting independence, like the radical independence campaign, who are fighting for a different sort of independence. And I would have always, if, the, if, if Scotland voted for independence, I would always cheer them on and support them. And also the establishment get, just resorted to naked blackmail. I mean, it, it wasn't so much, often I say the establishment is not a conspiracy, but there were elements in overt conspiracy during that whole process david cameron ringing up mobile phone company heads and supermarket leaders to say if you you know we love you scotland but if you vote for independence then the whole roof is going to come falling in on you you know you'll lose your jobs the economy will crash it was completely unacceptable so yeah obviously they were fearful because they were scared about their prestige that you know it wouldn't automatically as some i think thought have led to this great new um break in scotland from the neoliberalism we had at the moment and and the labor the Labour Party here might have used it to shift even further to the right, possibly. But I'm not sure. I don't know. It's kind of one of these counter-historical things we can't we can't possibly know. Uh, but I do think it was inspiring. And they that was another example of people changing things because Scotland has changed because of what they've done. It has changed. You've got a huge surge in party membership, SNP, the Greens, all the rest of it. Uh, they've got, they are going to get new powers. They have to force those at the top to make sure they get those powers. But it's also opened up a debate in England and Wales about devolving power across England and Wales as well. So that shows, that was another recent example of people organising and forcing change uh, from above, which I think should inspire us. And just finally, the point about New Labour, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Of course, it demoralised lots of people who wanted change. But it was a symptom, partly rather than a cause. It was a symptom of the defeat of the left, of the sense of an alternative existing uh, to the order we have, of those defeats in the 80s, industrially, politically, all the rest of it. And there was that huge period of demoralisation when people just thought, look, we just want to get rid of these bloody Tories. We don't really care who uh, leads the Labour Party in order to do that. And that was a very, I think, strong sense. I remember when they won in 1992, I was seven, and my, my teachers came dressed in black. Uh, and it was a quite a traumatic day for people. And you'd had all those defeats of, you know, whether it be the miners or all those other unions had been smashed. Uh, you had, uh, you know, the left, the Labour in chaos, demoralised for the reasons I spoke about. So an, an inevitable, it was almost inevitable you get something like New Labour in that kind of atmosphere. Um, and, and I think then obviously that fed more demoralisation, so it became a bit of a vicious circle. So clearly it had that role, and the Iraq war being a classic example of that. And it did partly demoralise people because that sense of it doesn't matter how many march against a, a disaster, which we predict will be disaster and ended up being worse, more of a disaster tragically than unfortunately anti-war campaigners thought it would be. So for me, it's always about not seeing politics as a soap opera above. It's not a bunch of people sitting there in, in, in ministerial offices and, and issuing parliamentary acts. It's about people organising from below. And just finally, that is my plea to people. Whenever I do a talk, always say this to people. It's all well and good to come and have discussions where we talk about the world and discuss issues and discuss power. But that isn't, that isn't the point. That's not how we're going to get change. And if you do believe we live in a fundamentally 
bankrupt order where the wealth and power of the top 1,000 people can double whilst people can't even afford to feed themselves and the sixth richest country on the face of the earth. If you believe that is wrong, then let's carry on the great traditions of this country where people have changed things and won. Not to get things off their chest, but to win things, to have victories. But that is up to all of us. Not to go home tonight and think, hopefully, I hope we had an interesting discussion, but to actually think, what can we actually do about it? Can we actually organise and change things? Whether it's joining a political party, whether it's joining a, a trade union, whether it's joining a local campaigning group on the NHS, housing, wage, living wage, whatever, but to do something. And if we all do that, we'll go home and make a vow to do that, then we can change things. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.